Today in part seven for your notes, today I want to talk to you about this. A basic understanding of the Bible. A basic understanding. I believe that many people in here, Christians saved, come to church, but you're intimidated by the Bible. And you sometimes try to read and you don't even know what you're reading. And so I'm going to give you a basic understanding of the Bible. I'm going to give you four points that if you will always remember, and I promise you'll remember, I promise, I promise, that no matter when you open up the Bible, you'll know exactly kind of what's going on and what you're going to receive from it. Now, for all of you theological, hermeneutical, exegesis, you know, deep theologians, I realize there's more than four parts. I realize it. The title of the sermon is a basic understanding. Don't email me about the minor prophets and the major prophets and the epistles and the five books of the law and all that stuff, okay? I'm making it easy so that I can understand it because us men, we need things to be easy to understand, okay? So <clears throat> before we get into that, let me share with you some, some points. And the first one is this. The Bible is the world's number one best-selling book of all time. Now, I'm not just saying that to like exaggerate or brag, but since books began, there's never been a book that has sold more copies in one year ever than the Bible. The Bible sells, there, there's more Bibles sold than Joel Osteen books. That's how great the Bible is. The Bible is the first book to be printed from cover to cover. The Bible is the first book ever used for the presidents of the United States to take their oath. George Washington implemented that. Not all, um, not all presidents continue with that, but most of them have. The Bible is the first book ever to be recited from space. Not by God and the angels, but by actual human beings. The Bible is the first book ever read from the first radio program broadcast. It actually took place on December the 24th, 1906 in Massachusetts. Any Massachusetts people in here? Yeah, Northerners. And uh, the Bible <coughs> is the first. <laughs> we were, we're Northerners, but we moved to the South because we love Myrtle Beach. First document to be encoded in the 5D glass disc. The Bible is the first book ever read in the illumination of the electric light bulb. Thomas Edison said this, the Bible lit me. So I lit the world. Isn't that amazing? The French philosopher Voltaire, if you ever heard of Voltaire, if you ever studied philosophy, he said, and I quote, in a hundred years, the Bible will be a forgotten book. A hundred years after he said that, he was dead, and the French Bible Society owned his house. I thought that was a really unique thing. The Bible, for your notes, is called the Holy Bible. People think the word holy means perfect. It doesn't, even though it could be derived from that, but the word holy actually means set apart. The Bible says that you and I are supposed to be holy. We're supposed to be set apart from the rest of the world. Different. There should be something different about us. Okay, the Bible is set apart from every other book on planet Earth. Every other book. How can the Bible be holy? How can it be set apart from every other manuscript, every, any, anything ever written? Here's why. The Bible is the only book in the universe that was written by a spirit. It's the only book in the universe written by a spirit. Listen, two spirits. It wasn't written to humans. You know that you, you and I are spirits. We're going to live forever, either in heaven or hell, smoking or not smoking. But we're going to live forever, right? Live forever. Okay? We're spirits. We sometimes, think, <clears throat> we sometimes think that we are humans. And every now and then we have spiritual experiences. You know, God supernaturally heals or does a miracle or speaks to us or a word of wisdom. No, no, no. We are actually spirits. And sometimes... We have human experiences like fear, hatred, racism, anger, depression, human experience. But we are actually spirits. And the Bible is the only book ever written 
Five spirit, two spirits. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus said this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, they'll never, they're eternal. They'll last forever. Heaven as we know it won't always be where it's at. It's actually going to come down over Israel, the book of Revelation says. It'll be a perfect square. That's the city of heaven. And the earth as we know it will actually burn up and be recreated. So here's the point. Heaven as you know it, earth as you know it won't last forever. But this right here, this will last for all time. That's why we should get to know this. That's why we should open this thing up. Now, I want to just give you a, a little... um little bit of wisdom to help you understand the Bible real quick. So let me ask you a question. There's a song that came out, I think, in the 80s or 70s called I Just Called to Say I Love You. Y'all know that song? I Just Called. So let me just play it for you just to make sure you can get it. It's Odyssey. <laughs> shows up on the wall and starts writing in a room filled with drunk people. God loves to mess with the drunk people. I think that's so funny. They're all drunk and all of a sudden the hand of God appears and starts writing on the wall. God could have written it. Here's the thing though. He loves to use people. And he loves to use fallible people. Do you know some of the, all, some of the writers of the Bible? Murderers, adulterers, Pharisees, religious people. people that, and then God changes their life and he uses them to pen the word of God. But it's got one author. Stevie Wonder, author, I just call to tell but he had to get somebody else to write it down. That's how I want you to see the Bible. Um, the Bible has 66 books, and it's a love story of everything God did to reach me and you, no matter how horrible we are. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. One author, 40 or 44 different writers. It's a love story of everything God did in spite of our foolishness. So I have four points for you today that help you understand the Bible. Are you ready? Say, oh yeah? yeah. Point number one is this. God the Father. Whenever you read anything in the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, I want you to think about God the Father pursuing your heart, wanting a relationship with you. Now, I realize that the Trinity is there the whole time in the beginning and so forth, but I just want you to see God the Father wanting your heart. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Everybody say heavens. That's the celestial beings, the angels, the galaxies, and the earth. But the earth at this time when God created it, it was formless. It was void. Darkness was everywhere. In verse 3, God said, let there be light. And light came at 186,000 miles per second. But here's what I want you to understand. Between verse 1 and verse 3, there could have been millions, if not billions, of years. God did not start the process day and night and time as we know it until verse 3 and 4. So the dinosaurs or whatever, all these other things that the earth has, between verse 1 and verse 3, most likely that's where millions if not billions of years was, 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 was there in the middle of that. And then in verse 3, God starts forming. Now, here's what I want you to understand. 
In between verse 1 and verse 3, something happened up in the heavens that God created that forever changed the course of the universe. Out of all the angels, God had three that were in charge, Gabriel, Michael, and Lucifer. And one of the angels, Lucifer, the worship leader, the one that was in charge of all the praise and glory being reflected off of him, the Bible says, and shot unto God. In that one split second, he had a thought. He didn't even say it out loud. It was just a thought. In Isaiah 14, 11, it says, you are now in hell because you said in your heart, I will be God. I'll make myself like him. I don't want all this praise and glory for myself. Revelation 12, 9, the devil was forced out of heaven and a third of his angels were flung out with him. So fast forward to 4,000 B.C., about 6,000 years ago or so, give or take 500 years, God created life, formed the earth, started the day and night, the plants, the people, and this cosmic chess game began. The devil's on one side of the cosmic chess board and God's on the other. Now listen real close. God and Satan do not battle. Don't ever put them on the same level. Satan is a created being. The chess match, the battle that they're going, is not against each other. The battle is for you. God and Satan are fighting to see who's going to win your heart. That's the cosmic chess game of the universe. And God started with the first move of this cosmic chess board in Genesis 1:27, where he created man in his own image and likeness. Here's why all God wants is a family. And in Revelation, the end of time, that's all he gets is a family. So when he created mankind, he didn't create us as robots because you can't have a family if someone's forced to love you. He gave us a free will because he wanted us to want to be in relationship with him. But there's a problem with having a free will because if you can choose to love, you can also choose to disobey. And so Satan slithered into the garden with his move and he tempted Adam and Eve and then sin begins. And sin runs rampant through the whole earth. In fact, it was so bad, God had to destroy and start all over. And he looked, he looked to try to find somebody that would honor him, somebody that wanted to be in a relationship with him, somebody that cared enough to talk to him and be a family with him. And God found a young man named Noah in Genesis 6, verse 9. It says, Noah was the only man who lived in fellowship with God. And God said, Noah, I need you to build an ark. And Noah said, a what? And God said, it's going to rain. It's going to what? But Noah was obedient. And because of Noah's obedience, mankind was spared. And then the enemy came with his move on the cosmic chessboard of the universe. And he slithered in and he created self-centeredness. What all people wanted to do was worry about them, their kingdom, their money, their bank account. What they wanted. It had nothing to do with God. And sin once again ran rampant through the entire earth. But our God, never to be outdone. With his move, he found this pagan town, a horrible, nasty city where evil people live named Myrtle. Ah, uh -huh, not Myrtle. Named Ur. And he went to Ur and he found this teenager who didn't serve God, didn't know anything about God, a teenager who didn't do anything right. And God came to him in Genesis 12 to him and said, listen, Abram, I'm going to make you great nation. I'm going to, your seed, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, they will worship me and be in relationship with me and I'll finally have a family. I'm going to bless you in abundance. The Bible says Abram believed. So much so God changed his name to Abraham. And he said, I want you to teach your children to serve me, to worship me, to be in relationship with me, how important it is to have me in your life. And everything was going fine, but Satan was not too worried because Satan knew sins passed through the blood. And no matter how much you go to church or how much you teach your children, no matter how much you train your children to worship God, sin is on the inside of us. And it gets transferred from one to the next, generation to generation. So God went to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to teach you a way to pay for your sins so you can still hear from me and talk to me. And he created the blood sacrifice. God says, since sin is passed through the blood, you have to use one of your perfect animals. It's going to take a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of energy. But I need you to do this so that you can still be in relationship with me. Because I can't be in relationship with anyone that has sin in their life. 
And everything was going fine until Satan made his next move. God's people, Israel, Abraham's descendants, they ended up in Egypt and became enslaved under Pharaoh for 400 years. But our God, never to be outdone, he set a move in place that nobody saw coming. He went to the prince of Egypt, Moses, the adopted grandson of the man that's enslaved God's people. And at the perfect time, he told Moses, you go to your adopted grandfather and you tell him, I said, let my people go. And at the perfect time, Moses went and did that 10 miraculous plagues later. And now God's people are free from bondage and slavery, able to worship him on their own. While they're in the wilderness, though, the enemy came in with a complaining spirit. No matter what God did, it was never enough. They wanted water. God gave them water. They complained and wanted food. God gave them manna from heaven. They complained and wanted meat, not veggies. And God sent quail all across the land. Complaining, complaining. No matter what God did, it was never enough. And it got so bad that Moses died. And the second in command, Joshua took over. And he led them into the promised land. So finally, Israel is formed. They have their own land flowing with milk and honey. They went into a place where giant homes were already built. They had no mortgage. God got rid of the giants in the land and now they had homes built by people three to four times bigger than them. No mortgage, everything was free and God blessed them so much and everything was going great. But then Satan used his next move in Judges 2.11. God did great works for Israel, but after Joshua died, the people started going after gods and serving Baal or money. They could not get enough money. Gold was their God. The government was not their source, God was. Gold was not their source. God was. The boss was not their source. The paycheck was not their source. Everything they looked at, they wanted more of it instead of wanting more of God. And they started complaining, saying, God, listen, we're tired of this, this, this land where you tell us what to do. All these other nations around us, they have kings and kingdoms, and they show off their castles and all of their gold. So we want a king, and God wanted so bad to be in a relationship with him. So at that point, Israel went from a theocracy, which is people led by God, to a monarchy, which is people led by a king. And God said, I'll give you a king. And so the Bible says that God found this red-headed, freckle-faced, handsome young boy who was a faithful shepherd named David. And God crowned him king of Israel. With that one move, God put the enemy in check. Because God said, from the seed of David will come the Messiah that will take away the sins of the world. The cosmic chess match continued through the ages. Kings to prophets to judges. Satan had a lot of moves, but as difficult as it was... God was always able to find at least one person on earth, sometimes two, sometimes three, who wanted a relationship with him bad enough that they would use all their time, energy, money, and livestock to make daily sacrifices for their sins, knowing God cannot be in a relationship with someone that's imperfect. The Old Testament closes in 400 B.C. with 400 years of silence. No moves were made. God's on one side, Satan's on the other side, and the entire universe and all of creation is waiting to see who will make the next move. Which comes point number two, God the Son. When Jesus was born in the New Testament that you read, God looked at Lucifer and said, check, mate. Anytime you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you are reading the life of Jesus. All four of those Gospels, we call them, have the life and the death, the, the, the birth and the death of Jesus, but from four different points of view. Uh, Matthew was a tax collector, so he had a great job and a lot of money, and he left all of that to follow Jesus. So imagine when you're reading Matthew, all the details. He spent years saying, he spent years being trained, don't ever miss an I. You've got to dot every I, cross every T. You can't get anything. And so the details that Matthew has are amazing. And then Luke. 
Luke was a physician, so he studied how to be a doctor. And he wanted so bad to help people with medicine. And then he starts following Jesus. And Jesus just speaks a word and somebody's healed. He's amazed by that. I can't believe this. I studied for years to try to help people. And all you do is look at them and they're healed. You know, now, uh, John 1, 29 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away, take me back to Scripture, who takes away the sin of the world. There's things in the book of John you'll never see anywhere else. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels. In other words, they have the same stories, but from different points of view. Now, all four have the birth and death, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke have the third year of Jesus' ministry. John only has the first two years and some of the third of the ministry of Jesus. Uh, John 1.14 says the word Christ became flesh, human, incarnate, and dwelt among us for 33 and a half years. Jesus, God, was a human. And that's very important for you to understand when you read the Gospels. Because in other words, Jesus knows what it's like to go through things that you have gone through. Jesus knows what it's like to have siblings and have to deal with family rivalry. Mark 6, 3 said he was a carpenter, son of Mary. He had brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Even he had sisters. Imagine how many times one of his siblings heard the phrase, now what would Jesus do? Why can't you be more like Jesus? I mean, I bet all the other kids in school had the WWJD bracelets on, but none of his siblings, they tear them things off. We're not wearing this. What would my brother do? I don't know, you know. I can picture the kids, you know, they're, they're at the playground and a chariot comes by and, and runs over their pet dog and kills it. And all the kids are crying and screaming, oh no, pet, you know, Sparky. And then Jesus walks by, he's eight years old and he just pets the dog. And oh, Sparky was just sleeping and he runs off and goes, we don't know. We don't have a lot about his childhood in the Bible, but we know he had siblings. It said he's a carpenter. That means he knows what it's like to work incredibly hard. Probably from age 12 to age 30, was he using his muscles every day? There was no power tools. You think of Jesus as being this calm, you know, wearing a perfectly clean white robe with a nice shaven beard. No, he had a dynasty beard. He had sawdust all in it. He had huge biceps. I mean, every day he's working with his arms. And I can imagine every piece of furniture he made was perfect, done with such great excellence. Jesus knows what it's like to deal with racism. In Mark 15, 30, they hurled insults at him because he was a Jew. He knows what it's like to be treated differently and poorly. Here's why. Because the color of his skin, his nationality. Remember they even said, nothing good can come out of Nazareth, right? Nothing can come out of this place. He knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to have a good friend, someone that you love, betray you for money. Of all the reasons to give up a business partner, to, to hurt somebody, to a family member. He, Matthew 26, 16, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over for money. He knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to deal with emotional and physical pain. Mark 15, 18, they struck him on the head with a stick and spit on him. The soldiers nailed him to a cross. God the Father watched while his own creation tortured to death his child. Why did God stand back and do nothing? Here's why. God already set a rule. There has to be a blood sacrifice to pay for sin. Sins passed through the blood. There has to be a blood sacrifice. And God can't say something and take it back or he'd be a liar. In keeping with what his word said, Jesus had to give his blood. Hebrews 10, 9, God did away with the old sacrifices 
and put Christ in their place. The Gospels, Matthew, Roland, and Jesus, it is how, Mark, 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 Luke, and John, it is how easy it is for us to now be in a relationship with God. Listen, in the Old Testament, there could have been millions of people on earth and only one person who would do all the work to hear from God. Now all we have to do is believe. Growing up, there were some theological debates in the 80s and 90s over who put Jesus on the cross. You know, the Jews, they said he was guilty of blasphemy. But they never, they never beat him or tortured him. But they said he's guilty. He needs to be killed. The Romans said he's innocent. Remember? But they're the ones that actually tortured him and abused him. My dad taught me when we were younger. He said, John Paul, you and I, we're the ones that put Jesus on the cross. But a few years ago I was studying and I believe the Holy Spirit told me, John Paul, you didn't put me on the cross. Jesus put Jesus on the cross. It says in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down voluntarily. He knows what it's like to go through pain for somebody he loves. So knowing that God is not far out there and, you know, untouchable, he became a human. He knows what it's like to go through what you're going through. When will you talk to him about your pain? When will you have a relationship with this human we call Jesus? Point number three for your notes. After Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the next book of the Bible, the fifth book of the New Testament, is the book of Acts. Number three is this. God, the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit. Um, it says in Acts 1, 5, and 8, Now you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, theologically speaking, Jesus does not live in your heart. It's okay if you say that, and it's okay if we teach our children that, but just to be very clear, biblically, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. When he ascended into heaven after he, after he rose from the dead and spent that few little those days on earth, he is now up in heaven. The Holy Spirit is actually the one who lives inside of you. Okay? Now, I realize the Holy Spirit, sometimes people that talk about the Holy Spirit are weird people. And you see weird preachers on TV. So let me teach you about that. The Holy Spirit is not weird. People are weird. The Holy Spirit is not weird. And those people that are weird, they would be weird without the Holy Spirit. They're just weird. In fact, there's a poll that shows one out of every three people are actually weird. Now, real quick, just look to your left and look to your right. If neither one of those two people are weird, I'm just saying anyway, okay. Okay, so the New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in, in um, Hebrew. So Greek is how the New Testament. Latin is derived from Greek, and English is derived from Latin. So I wanted to show you the Greek and the Latin for Holy Spirit. It's paraclete in Greek, that's the Holy Spirit, and parakletos in Latin is helper. Now, our language came from the Latin, and the word para, P-A-R-A, means to throw alongside of. In other words, when Jesus gave a parable, parabole, he was throwing a story alongside of a deep truth. You know, when you read the Gospels, you read the parables, where if he's talking to farmers, he tells a story about a seed. If he's talking to shepherds, he tells a story about a sheep, you know, and so it helps them understand the deep truth. Um, paragraph, para alongside graph is writings. So paragraph are writings alongside each other. Here's the point I'm making. Would it be okay if the most intelligent and strongest being in the universe was alongside of you every single day, 24-7, everywhere you're at, no matter what you're going through? Would that be okay? 
That should be okay. Okay, Jesus talked a lot about the Holy Spirit um, before he ascended up into heaven. John 16, 12, he said this, I have many things to say to you, so when the Spirit comes, he, everybody say he. he. That's really important. I'll tell you why in a second. He will speak to you. He will lead you. The Spirit will take what I say and reveal, declare, disclose it, and transmit it to you. Transmit it. This is how we hear from God is from the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to tell you right now a true story that is a weird, crazy story. You want to hear a crazy, weird story? It's crazy weird, and it happened here. Crazy weird. Go figure. Okay, so, so a few weeks ago, a really good friend of mine, he had a, a, he had a good friend that was visiting from out of state, who was a multimillionaire, very intelligent, well-to-do businessman who just got married about four months before. And he's coming down to visit my friend. And when he's down here, he's just not in his right mind. He's saying things that are just crazy and he's hallucinating. And just, it just seemed like there was demonic activity. Just, he was not normal, something crazy. So my friend calls me up. He knows I'm a pastor. And he says, listen, I need you to pray for my buddy. So they put me on speakerphone and I could tell there was something very demonic, if not, you know, just off the wall. And so I said, I'm going to pray for you, but I also need you, you need to go to the hospital as well. We're going to use supernatural wisdom and we're going to use natural wisdom as well because God's a, a, a wise God. And so I said, I need you to pray after me. Say in Jesus' name. And he wouldn't say in Jesus' name. He's like, no. I said, well, listen, demons tremble at them. Just, you need to say in Jesus' name. No, I won't do it. So I tried to pray and all, and, and it, it wasn't going well at all. And so they said, listen, can you come over to our house and, you know, pray for him in person? And I thought, no, but I know just the person from church to call. So I called one of our prayer partners. I won't tell you which one, but she decided to call the people for me. She got on the phone with them, and she's praying in the Spirit and hearing from God and trying to help. And she's saying, you need to say the name of Jesus. He won't say the name of Jesus. And as she's hearing from God and talking, she says, your wife's trying to kill you. They hung up on her. I thought, well, I lost those friends. They'll never come back to my church ever again. No, I thought, okay, I trust my prayer partners. We'll see. And they called back, and we're sorry, and we're going to go to the hospital, and, you know, we're going to, that's, you know, yada, yada. Okay, guess what? The next day, guess what? Guess what? The wife was trying to kill the husband. She had been poisoning him for months. She knew that she could take over the business and the money if he was found, you know, insane or even dead. He goes to the hospital. They, they flush him out. In two or three days, he's perfect, completely back to normal. I think FBI's involved, the police and all. She skipped town and everything, and they're dealing with this big ordeal. Would it be okay if you could hear from the being in the universe who knows everything about everybody all the time and what's going on in your life? Would that be okay if the Holy Spirit could speak to you that way? Yes. Wouldn't you love to know if you're... Anyway, it'd be great if the Holy Spirit <laughs> trying to kill me with vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> I'll know something's up if I don't see any meat on my plate. <laughs> You're trying to do something to me, woman. No, anyway. Listen, even when you come to our prophetic service like we had this past week, you're not coming to hear from God through a person. When you come to a prophetic service, you're coming to hear God say something to you that he's already been trying to say to you a hundred times through the Holy Spirit. You do not need me to hear from God. The, the Word of God, this is, this is the general will of God, okay? The Holy Spirit is the specific will of God for your life. This book will tell you you got to go to church. Every week you should be in church. But the Holy Spirit will tell you which church to go to. This book can tell you how to be married. But the Holy Spirit can tell you who to marry. Who you're supposed to be with. This book can teach you how to pray. But the Holy Spirit will tell you what to pray. 
Isn't that amazing? The only way you'll ever even understand this is to have a relationship with the author of it who wrote it. John 14, 26 says this, the helper, the comforter, the counselor, the strengthener, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my place, Jesus said, will teach you all things, all things. So growing up, uh, my grandparents, my, my nana and papa are in Darlington, were in Darlington. Uh, my nana's the only one left, but my grandma and granddad lived in, in Georgetown and they're in heaven now. But they had this huge, huge house on acres of property and we'd go visit half of their house we were never allowed to go in. I mean, it was the most beautiful room. It was like bright red carpet. You know, this is from the 80s and 90s, 70s or whatever. And antique furniture and all these beautiful decorations and paintings and, 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 um, and china and all. And we were told as kids, you better not go in this room. And I was like, Grandma, who's the room for? Like, it's, it's everything. In fact, the, no one had ever been able to touch anything in there. The couches, beautiful couches. But even though nobody went in there, she had this plastic that was like two inches thick on the couches anyway. One time I sat on that couch and I slid right off the ground near the bottom. Remember your grandparents, did they ever put plastic on a couch that no one's even using anyway? And when they died, somebody just came and took all the stuff. They never did enjoy it. I'd spend the night at her house and I would get ready for bed. I'd, I'd go take a bath, you know, as a kid. And she would walk in the bathroom and she would take off the most beautiful, plump towels off of the rack and hand me some dirty, nasty towel with holes in it. I said, she said, oh no, these are for special guests here. I'm your grandson, woman. I'm your first grandson. How you can't get more special than that? Oh no, these are for special guests. Give me some dirty, I would use that towel to dry my back and the thing would just rip in half, it was so old. Then it came time to go to bed. Beautiful, huge antique bed with the most beautiful comforter, I mean, just so fluffy and clean, she would take that off the bed and hand me a blanket that she bought from the Great Depression. I mean, it was so thin, I would freeze all night. The thing was thin, I mean, it was, I don't, it was just, okay. She said, no, no, John Paul, this comforter is for looks, not use. How many Christians in this room have the comforter, the Holy Spirit, but he's just for looks. We just want to look like we're Christians on Sunday morning. We don't really use him. You know, when everything's going bad in our life, we don't go to the comforter. We go to Facebook and let everybody know how we're feeling. No, no, when we're sick, we don't go to the, we, we don't go to the Holy Spirit and ask our comforter, can you? No, we go straight to the medicine cabinet first. And then maybe we'll pray a few days later. Something's going bad in our marriage. We don't go to the comforter. No, no, he's just for looks. We tell three friends how bad our spouse is. And then we wait till Sunday morning. And then we talk about the Holy Spirit. Listen, he's not just for looks. He's for use. Every single day, 24-7, for use. It says in John 16, 7, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't, the Holy Spirit won't come. But when I go, I will send him. Everybody say him. The Bible never says the Holy Spirit is an it. Because you're not going to have a relationship with an it. You're going to have a relationship with a him. And I was talking to God. I said, God, I think there's a problem with this. I understand him, but I think the problem is the name Holy Spirit. It just makes us feel like, oh, we're, you know, spiritual. and just. Be. I said, why don't you name him Bill? <laughs> then I can say, you know what? I was walking on the beach with Bill the other day. And me and Bill were talking. And Bill was just so comforting. And Bill just gave me the courage. And oh, I heard Bill tell him, it would be so. And then 
The Episcopal Church and the Methodists and Baptists, they can call him William. You know, because they're kind of, you know, we're up there. So, William, you know, we're going to meet with William. And then the crazy churches, like the Charismatic and the Baptist and Church of God, I mean, uh, Church of God, Pentecostal, they can call him Billy. Wild Billy! Oh, Billy was in service today, you know. But then God told me his name isn't Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. His English name is God. His part in the Trinity is function as the Holy Spirit, but his name is God, and he wants a relationship with you. Point number four, and I'm not going to spend any time on this because I've already preached about it, but God's church and God's family. Romans to Revelation. When you read anything from Romans to Revelation, just thinking you had the whole time, God wants you to be part of his family so you can pull more people into his family. Ephesians 4.12, God gave the church to equip the saints to serve until we become mature believers. That's the whole Bible. The Old Testament is God wanting a relationship with you. The Gospels is everything Jesus did so God can have a relationship with you. The book of Acts is how God wants to empower you so you can be in relationship with him every single day. And then the rest of the New Testament is so you can go out and pursue people for God to bring more of them into the family. That is the whole Bible. And just in case you missed it, I have 30 seconds left of the sermon. I want to go through every book of the Bible real quick and tell you who God is. You ready? Say, oh, yeah. yeah. Genesis, he's our creator. Exodus, he's our deliverer. Leviticus, he teaches how to live holy. Numbers, he's our provider. Deuteronomy, he's our guide in difficult times. Joshua, he's our leader. Judges, he's our undeserved hero. Ruth, he's our restoration. First and second Samuel, he takes the ordinary and makes us extraordinary. First Kings, he's our justice. First and second Chronicles, he's the center of life. Ezra, he's faithful. And Nehemiah, he's the one who fights for our sons and daughters. Esther, he's our courage. Job, he's our answer to prayer in the darkest times of life. Psalms, he turns our mourning into dancing. Proverbs, he's our wisdom and common sense. Ecclesiastes, he's perfect time. And Song of Solomon, he's the lover of our soul. Isaiah, he's the prince of peace. Jeremiah, he's the one who calls teenagers to speak on his behalf. Lamentations, he's our mercy. Ezekiel, he calls us from sin. Daniel, he shuts the mouth of our enemies. Hosea, he still loves sinful people. Joy, he's the promise of the Holy Spirit. Amos, he's not religion. He's a relationship. Obadiah, he saves us from our pride. Jonah, he always has another plan A. Micah, he's looking for repentance. Nahum, he's our overcomer. Habakkuk, he's in control of the universe. Zephaniah, he shakes us out of complacency. Haggai, he's our encourager. Zechariah, he's our hope. And Malachi, he teaches us how to live with integrity. And that's just who he is in the Old Testament. In Matthew, he's the Messiah. Mark, he's the miracle. Luke, he's perfection. John, he's eternal life. Acts, he offers us the power to operate in the spirit realm. Romans, he's grace. First and second Corinthians, he's the power of love. Galatians, he's freedom from the curse of sin. Ephesians, he's our family. Philippians, he's our joy. Colossians, he's head of the church. First and second Thessalonians, he's our strength. Timothy, he's our pastor. Titus, he's our church leader. Philemon, he tears down racial and denominational walls. Hebrews, he's our faith. J J James, he's our healer when we're sick. First and second Peter, he's truth. First and second, third John, he's assurance. Jude, he's our warning from danger. And revelation in the very end, he was, he always will be. The first, the last, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, our student coming king. And that's the whole Bible. The love story, the love story of the Bible. Shows us that God the Father wants a relationship with us so bad. That God the Son would sacrifice his life so we could be in that relationship. And then God the Holy Spirit empowers us every day to bring more and more people in this family that we call church. 
It'll be the only thing that'll last for all of eternity. And that's Genesis to Revelation. Amen? Amen. Amen.